as I made my way here, I passed by a couple of churches that their parking lots were empty. And uh, I kind of perceived from that, particularly being late in the hour, that they were not having worship services this morning. But uh, I don't want to cast any judgment uh, upon these other congregations. I am just glad to be here with you this morning. I'm glad to be here uh, with God's people who have covenanted together uh, to be able to be here to worship our great and wonderful God. And this wouldn't happen without the support and the service from members uh, who are serving you now in this present moment, from our accompanists to our choir to our sound uh, people, our, our live stream people, uh, our nursery workers. Uh, all of this is because we as a body believe that our God is worthy of our worship, particularly on his day. So if you would, please join me in prayer as we prepare ourselves to worship through the preaching of the word. Lord God, how can we neglect so great a salvation? One in which you sent your one and only son into the world to become flesh so that he may become righteousness for us as he lived his life and also that he might become sin for us so that he could pay the penalty of the debt that we owe you. And so, Lord, as we contemplate how Christ came into the world this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would lift our minds and our hearts to be in awe of you and to give you worship. May we not be the same leaving here today as when we came. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, last night during our Christmas Eve service, we talked about the incarnation is invitation. God doesn't just invite you into his all-intimidating throne room, a scene that in Isaiah chapter 6 caused the prophet in fear to force his face to the ground in the sheer awesomeness of Yahweh. God invites us to come to him through his son, Jesus real, living, breathing, tangible flesh, flesh that has experienced the same heartaches and hardships that we have faced on earth, yet without sin. And as we heard last night, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What an invitation from such a holy God. Aren't you glad that we come to God through the righteousness of the Son and not in the same fashion as Isaiah? Well, this morning, I want to share why this invitation of the incarnation should make us hopeful. I think that it's all what we want here living in this present sin-sick world. We just want hope, don't we? And just in time on Christmas Day, this will be your present of the wonderful meditation on the incarnation of Jesus. Now, when I was a child, a family friend came over to our home to, to give my brothers and I Christmas gifts. He was a man that had mentored my father in the business world, and he loved my dad so much that he wanted to give my dad's sons gifts. And whenever Mr. Beeman came over, he always seemed to, to have the coolest presents to give us. And on one of these occasions, I, I can't remember exactly what my brothers got. Um, I want to say that one of them got like a really cool pocket knife, and the other got a model airplane. And then I opened up my present, and it was a book. Now, for people that know me, you might be thinking, well, what a perfect gift for Blair. Because <laughs> after all, he needs more books. 
But when you're seven years old, a really thick book compared to a sharp implement and a plane that you can terrorize your enemies with is, well, it's boring. But here's the thing. This book was full of articles that taught you how to do all kinds of cool stuff, like how to build a boat, how to make the perfect paper airplane, how to tie knots, how to build a treehouse, even how to play pranks on your friends. It was a gift that kept giving. At the time of the gift, I did not appreciate it. It just seemed like a boring gift. But later, as I got interested in reading, it was a book that I just kept going back to. It turned out to be an awesome gift. But at the moment it was given, I couldn't see just how useful it could be. Now, I see you out there this morning. Some of you came in. Some of you were able to actually manage to get your hair combed. You got your eyes blurry. Some of you were up probably with a baby all night last night. Uh, some of you were up for other reasons last night. And you got up really early this morning before you came to worship. But I want to give you a useful present today. I want to give you the hope of the incarnation, but it's probably not the gift that you expected. And it's going to require me to, to get a little deeper than usual and for you to think a little harder than most people want to do on a Christmas morning. I'm going to provide you with five, but actually nine, reasons the incarnation of Jesus provides us with hope. This is going to be the stuff of rich blessing. And I promise you, though it's not the gift you were expecting, if you come back to it a little bit later, as you contemplate it, it might fuel your hope, not just to the end of 2022, not just for 2023, but maybe even propel your hope for a lifetime, all because of the incarnation. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, please have your Bibles handy here. In fact, you might want to have a pen and the outline that's in your worship guide as well. And I'd like you to open up your Bibles once again back to Philippians chapter 2. This was our Advent reading for last night. It's on page 980. Now, this is what's so amazing. I did not plan Advent this year. Brother Brian uh, worked out the Advent readings for this year. He had no idea when he put Philippians chapter 2 to be on the night for Christmas Eve that we were going to be discussing it this morning. This, I love how God just works all this out. And since this is a topical sermon here, I'm going to have you look at other passages this morning. So here we go. I'm going to give you five, but actually nine, reasons the incarnation of Jesus can give us hope. And again, the word incarnation means that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh for all of eternity to become a man. It is vital in Orthodox Christianity that we hold the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man. What Brian Faru wants me to make sure that I get you to understand is called the hypostatic union. That's a $5 word for God or for Jesus being fully God and fully man, all right? So say that with me, hypostatic union. Very good. He is just grinning from ear to ear. All I see is this, mu this mustache going, whoop. <laughs> now, I made reference to this in staff meeting a few weeks ago, but I think it's something that I need to say right now. Does the fact that Jesus, who was once spirit, taking on flesh mean that God changes? Well, the answer to that is no, not if it was the plan from the very beginning of eternity, as if eternity has a beginning. 
This is what God wanted all along, and it's consistent with his nature. We're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, that this plan of God, of the Son, entering into the world in this fashion was Yahweh's plan all along from before the world began. Therefore, he does not change in his essence. So let's see this hope as we read Paul's letter to the Philippians. Again, five reasons, but actually nine, that the incarnation brings hope. You're probably asking, why does he keep saying that? It's because four of these nine reasons actually come under one heading. And we're going to linger on that first one a bit because of that. So reason number one, that the incarnation of Jesus gives us hope, is that Jesus is the perfect model of humanity. Jesus is the perfect model model of humanity. Let's read this passage again, and I want us to highlight verses 5 through 8. We'll begin in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, think a second about what Paul just said. Our joy, our comfort, our connection to the Spirit, our affections come from having the same mind as the Lord Jesus. So he instructs here in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And here's our emphasis, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself or made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now let's go back, let's look at verse 5. Paul says we are to have the same mind, the same thinking as the Lord Jesus. And this is what Jesus did. The second person of the Trinity, equal to God the Father in every way, though he was in the form of God, was not something that an ordinary human being could grasp or come to grips with. So what was he willing to do? Verse 7, he emptied himself. Or he made himself nothing. Now, when Paul speaks about emptying himself, he's not referring, or he is referring to Jesus as his status as a person in the Trinity. Christ did not cease to be God. He did not merely put away a particular superpower, but he emptied himself, or he surrendered his position in order to do what? By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Think about what Jesus did. As the creator of the universe, God the Son, do all glory and majesty, entered into the world in his human nature. He was no less divine, but he relinquished his position in order to become completely like one of us in every way, yet without sin. He came as a baby. He would suffer the indignity of being human that we would. Like many of us this past week, he would suffer cold. 
He would sweat in the heat. He would need food and subsistence, and he would nurse at his mother's breast. He would need his diaper changed. Oh, the wonder of the self-existing God, distinctly apart from his creation, would enter into the world and in his humanity become dependent upon it. When a baby enters into the world, it is a glorious work of God. The pain in childbearing is due to sin, but not the act of birth itself. I said last night that each one of you is special. You are created in the image of God. Therefore, every child in the womb and out of it is special. And the way Jesus entered the world proves that. He didn't just appear as an adult male. Adam did. So why not Jesus? Have you ever asked yourself why he came as a baby? Because he embraced every aspect of being human. He had to grow. He had to endure puberty. He had to learn. He had to gain experience, all to demonstrate the model of what God intends for humanity all along. Every one of us were procreated by our parents. Every one of us entered the world through our mothers. Jesus would experience the full range of human life just like every one of us. He would be the unfailing model of humanity. Children, those of you who are here with us, children, listen to this. Jesus knows what it's like to be you, to have limits, to be told what to do. The scriptures tell us that he learned obedience. He played with his friends. He probably played hide and seek. He was probably chased around the house by his dad, Joseph, just giggling all the way. He knew what it was like to be told no. He knew what it was like to be disappointed. He knew what it was like when a friend treated him unfairly or, or wouldn't share his toys with him. Jesus lived the full range of humanity perfectly. Therefore, he is a model for all of us. The life you are living right now is not obscure or unusual. Jesus lived it too. So because of that, there are four sub-reasons here that are implications of this. Why I say actually nine reasons for our hope in him. And I'm going to be quick with these, but each of these could be a sermon in themselves. Maybe next December. Because Jesus is the model of humanity... It means he shows us how to treat others. Look back at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul admonishes the Philippians to consider others more significant than themselves and look after the interest of others. And he immediately cites Christ's condescension and becoming human as the supreme example of this. This is the mind of Jesus, to put others above self. And as our model, it should be the same as us. Think about our future reward of heaven when we all dwell together in our glorified bodies in a perfect state without sin as God intended. We will all treat one another with respect and deference. You can ask anyone a question and not expect a sarcastic response. You will not be viewed as an inconvenience by the other person. No one will try to manipulate you for their own means. Everyone will have each other's interest before themselves. 
In fact, it's going to be better than Chick-fil-A when they say, no, really, it is my pleasure to serve you. This lets us know that the selfishness, the, the greed, the backbiting, the gossip is not what God intended for us. The world as it is is not what it's supposed to be, and Christ will redeem it fully to its glorious state. But just because it's being done poorly to you now doesn't mean we're not under obligation to treat others better than ourselves in the present. Paul states here in Philippians 2 that doing so is connected to our joy. A second sub-reason is Jesus shows us how to be empowered by the Spirit. Jesus shows us how to be empowered by the Spirit. Isaiah said this is what would happen with the Messiah. Jesus is not on a solo mission. Just like the rest of humanity, he would be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We read this earlier in the service. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus was dependent upon the Spirit's leading, just like we are. Even the miracles he conducted were through the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus cast out a demon from a man, and the Pharisees and scribes said he did it by the power of Beelzebub, Jesus replied in Matthew 12, verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus confessed that he did this miracle by the Spirit of God. We should note that the Spirit's purpose in this leading was not necessarily to make Jesus comfortable, but that God would be glorified. Jesus walked by faith, resting in the power of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to our third sub-reason. Jesus came to be the model of humanity, and coming as he did as a child who grew into a man, even though he was without sin, he discovered the truth of God's word, what it was, and obeyed it. Jesus learned what God's word was, and he obeyed it. He learned just like the rest of us. Jesus becomes a model of human development and acquiring knowledge. One of the few snippets of his childhood that we have is Jesus learning from the religious leaders when his parents visited the temple. Luke tells us immediately after this in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Because he learned the scriptures and because he obeyed, he suffered in many ways, just like we do. So let me draw one conclusion from this. Ignorance is not a sin. Your finite knowledge is how you were created. But God did create you to learn, to discover. And Jesus is the model of this. God created us to learn and grow and develop that we might be in awe of him and his creation. He does this so that you will seek him and his words and his works and worship him, all of which comes from learning and discovery. He wants you to grow up, have life experiences, and not remain in your parents' basement playing video games all the time. 
And I'm going to double down on learning the Bible here. If you are a Christian, you are obligated to study the Word because this is how the Spirit of God speaks to us. Jesus is the example for this. We put a premium on reading the Bible, singing the Bible, praying the Bible, studying the Bible, and preaching the Bible, not to make you book smart, but so that you may obey it and become like Christ. If you're coming to Sunday school and you're acquiring all this knowledge about the Bible and yet you are not being transformed to be like Jesus, then stop and ask yourself, what am I doing? Have I missed sight of the goal? Because obeying the Word is how you are led by the Spirit to glorify God and become Christ-like. Which both of these last sub-points that I just gave you tie into the fourth here. Jesus lived by the Spirit. Jesus learned what the Spirit had to say. And last, as a man, Jesus resisted temptation and sin by the word of the Spirit. It's very telling in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4 when Jesus is tempted by Satan to see how he resisted. He didn't fall back on his divinity and say, I am Jesus, second person of the Trinity, one with God, by my power and authority, go away, Satan. That would have been working through his divinity, not his humanity. He didn't shoot lightning bolts from his eyes and turn Satan into ash. Again, that would have been operating within his divinity. How did he resist Satan as the perfect man? He quoted Scripture, and he obeyed it. And after fasting 40 days a night, I'm sure his flesh was weakened in such a moment. And when the temptation came, Jesus relied on the power of the Spirit by being obedient to the words of Scripture, just like we're supposed to do. This obedience to the Bible was not just confined to the temptation in the wilderness, but we see it leading all the way up to the cross, becoming obedient even in his death. Jesus is the model of all humanity. Now we're going to move on. Reason number two, the incarnation brings us hope, is that through it, Christ became the sure salvation of our souls. Christ became the sure salvation of our souls. In his humanity, Jesus paid our sin debt and gave us his righteousness. Hopefully, we hear this aspect of the incarnation every Sunday. Because Jesus is the model of humanity, treated everyone with kindness, putting them first. Because he lived by the Spirit, grew in the Word of God and obeyed it, and resisted sin, he became the perfect sacrifice in our place to atone for our sin. This truth is taught all over the New Testament. Let me give you just a couple of references here. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, affirms this. I'm going to read this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Peter taught this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Because the word became flesh, 
We have one that stood in our place and who took the royal wrath of God for every sin we committed, and in exchange, we have his perfect righteousness imputed onto us. The incarnation gives us hope because it secured the salvation for our souls. Reason number three, the incarnation brings us hope. In the next world, we will not be disembodied spirits. I like this one. We will have perfect glorified bodies like the Lord Jesus. We're going to have perfect glorified bodies like the Lord Jesus. The scriptures tell us explicitly that Christ rose from the dead in a glorified body. Now, if you will, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is found on page 961 of your Bible. As you're turning there, it's significant to remember that in Acts chapter 1, that after spending his appointed time on the earth, post-resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven in bodily form. His glorified body is permanent, always as a testimony for his intercession for us. And here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 20, reveals to us Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, and if you want to underline that or circle that, that's important. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then has coming those who belong to Christ. This means, believer, your bodies, which are wasting away, are redeemed and will be restored and renewed without the ravages of age, disease, or depression. It means you're going to see your loved ones in the Lord again. It won't be disembodied spirits that we will be greeting. It will be real, living, warm-blooded bodies that we will embrace. I can't wait to hug my dad again. I'm looking forward to having coffee with Neil Stevens like we used to do, talking about First and Second Kings when he would try to ask me and stump me with all of his questions during that time. We might even invite Elijah and Elisha to join us over a cup of joe there. In heaven, I might. As long as it's in heaven, I might get into a car with Henry Smith once again. <laughs> For those of you who remember Henry, even though he was in his 80s, he liked to drive fast. He sanctified me in so many ways when he took me out to lunch. My prayer life improved drastically. But even more than this, I get to see and hold my Savior. I cannot wait. And I know he's going to be so holy and so majestic that it might cause hesitation to touch him, but that's just it. Because of the blood-bought sacrifice of his incarnation, I can boldly approach him and throw my arms around him and feel his embrace. I wonder if there are lines in heaven to hug Jesus. If so, I guarantee it's going to be worth it. We have all of eternity. Stand in line, it'll be worth it. The fourth reason that the incarnation gives us hope is that we have a sympathetic Savior. We have a sympathetic Savior. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. In your pew Bible, this is found on page 1003. 
Jesus went through all the same life experiences that we have, yet without sin. And even though he was completely divine, don't allow that to color your interpretation of how he battled temptation. Now, we must keep in mind that while on earth, Jesus lived by his human nature alone. We should not diminish the struggle of our Lord in the flesh when he was tempted, thinking that he had an easy way out. Most likely, he was tempted by Satan on a greater scale than we can ever comprehend. But Jesus understands the struggle. He knows how hard life on earth can be. He knows what it's like to be mistreated. He knows what it's like to be disappointed in others. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He even experienced racism from the Romans. He knows what it's like to live in poverty. He knows what it's like to care for a parent. He understands psychological and emotional burdens. There is no experience that we have in which Jesus cannot sympathize. And the writer of Hebrews tells us this in verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is why, believer in Christ, when you approach Jesus in the flesh, you will not feel condemnation, but sympathy for all that you have endured. Because he gets it. He understands what you've been through. And he's not thinking, well, I made it through. You should have made it through too. That's not how he looks at it. He wants you to come to him. Look at those words. He wants you to draw near. He knows every situation, every thought you have had in good times and bad. He experienced it too. And rather than turn you away, he wants you to come to him and find sympathy. How magnificent is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> and last, but, but not least, another reason we have hope due to the incarnation is that our Savior, who was raised from the dead in his glorified body, is now reigning victoriously, and eventually all things will be subjected to him. We have a real flesh and blood king that we serve. Now, I don't know about you, but I am frequently disappointed in earthly rulers. I, I live in a wonderful country where I at least have a choice, but increasingly I feel like I'm often choosing the lesser of two evils. And even those leaders that I am confident in are thwarted by other forces in government. But one day in the future, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which, by the way, means we will have physical knees and physical tongues to praise Jesus with. Matthew 28, verse 19, tells us that Jesus now has all authority on heaven and earth. It was given to him because he earned it through the incarnation. He has defeated his enemies 
sin, the devil, and death, and nothing can defeat him or thwart his purposes. He is gracious and righteous as a ruler. Every decision he makes is just. Every decree is loving and in the best interest of his people. We will never doubt the sincerity of our righteous ruler ever again. We will live in confidence and in peace. Isn't that glorious? Now, I see by our time, our time is almost up here, but my hope and my prayer on this day as we celebrate the incarnation is that you can grasp onto one of these reasons and have hope. Not wishful thinking, but as the Bible intends it, legitimate hope that increases our faith and our confidence in what Christ has done by becoming flesh. And in doing so, you will no longer look on your own resources or efforts, but you will cast your gaze upon him. You will see him as the model of humanity. And instead of becoming cynical towards mankind, you will learn to praise God for his image bearers. That you would rest in Jesus as your perfect sacrifice and quit trying to measure up to receive God's favor. That even though your body wears away and you're facing death, you know because of the incarnation that one day you're going to have a renewed body and you will give praise and glory to God in testimony as your flesh withers and decays in this world. That because of the incarnation, you can pray to Jesus knowing he understands your dilemma and receive sympathy from him instead of feelings of condemnation. And that our risen, resurrected Savior will soon be acknowledged by every soul that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And everything will be in subjection to him. Hallelujah. He is alive in the flesh forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, in a hopeless world, it seems like we could cast our eyes upon the situation that we find ourselves in, whether it's the balances in our checking accounts, uh, economy, the sin that's so rampant across the world, the evil that's done in the name of war and treaties and the bigotry and, Lord, all of it. We can become cynical. But you have given us every reason to hope because in the same type of world, you sent your son to become flesh, that he might become the model of humanity for us, a reason that we might have hope once again, that he came to secure our salvation, that, Lord, in in the midst of of all that he came to do, that he is our, now our righteous ruler, ruling victoriously from heaven, that he sympathizes with us, that he understands us. Oh, Lord, thank you for Jesus. What a gift that you have given to us, a gift that can renew our hope once again. I do pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, we will stop trying to put our hope, our trust, our faith in ourselves. I pray that we will stop trying to put our faith in government. I pray that we will stop trying to put our faith in other human beings. But I pray, Lord, 
that we will find our hope in Christ alone. We pray this in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen.